Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to help those who gladly do right, who remember your ways, but when, you conti when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. You have hidden your face from us, and you have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us as we pray, for we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. As we enter into the Advent season, what we're reminded of is that Advent begins in darkness. Anna asked if our passage this morning was Isaiah 9, if you're familiar with it. It's a people in darkness have seen a great light. And I said, no, Anna, that's, we're saving that for Christmas. She's like, oh, well, the kids do it sometimes. And I'm like, that's because it's a really good thing that they're doing back there. But we begin in darkness. This is Advent. Advent is a season. If you're not familiar with it, it's a penitent season, which, penitent season, which means that it is a season where we are to acknowledge our sins, our shortcomings, our failures. Advent is a season of preparation, of waiting. That means that we don't act. We, we long and wait and ask for God to act, and we sit patiently looking for it. It's a season of looking and longing and desire for things to be made right, to be made whole, to come again and to be restored and renewed. This, I think for most of us, uh, would feel a bit desperate, angsty, I like angst, so I think that's why I've embraced Advent so quickly in my life. Uh, when I first was introduced to it, I live in the angst. It's, it's comforting to me. For some of you, you're like, I hate angst, and I hate the, the thinking of existential crises and all of these things. And I'm like, well, too bad. But here's the thing. like, We get it. This rubs intentionally, I believe, against the very Christmas spirit that so many of us have already started to participate in and to partake in. And I love this about the Advent calendar, about the lectionary, what it does to us, the way it forces us into seasons, the way it reminds and retells and recalls truths about humanity and our experiences and who God is and who we are in respect. Because our temptation is to jump to Christmas. Norman Rockwell style, everything's happy, ho-hum, having yourself the most merry little Christmas. And hear me out, I say this every year. For as much as I love Advent, I love Christmas just as much. And I'm not talking about the theological aspects of Christmas and the Christmas service and what it represents. That, obviously, should go without saying as your pastor, I love that. I'm talking about I love the commercial aspects of it. I love the lights. I love the Santa hats. I love the Grinch. 
Like all of it. Like I want it. I want it as much as I can and I long for it and I look forward to it and I get really, really sad at the end of the Christmas season when the lights go away and the tree comes down because I'm like, ah, oh, I got to wait 11 more months. Now I think I, my love for it is so sacred, which is why you should you know, celebrate it when you're supposed to celebrate it, not before Thanksgiving, only after Thanksgiving, but some of you are non-believers still. We'll get there. But hear me out. What the church is doing here inside of these four walls and what we're asking you to do is not to like there's extremists and there's a place for this and if one of you decides like hey i'm not going to put my christmas tree up until christmas like until after the christmas service or the day of the christmas service i would commend you and say good on you and like go for it because i think there's a space for that but also i'm not doing that my christmas tree is up but what we're inviting you into here in this space inside these walls is this moment to pause and to reflect in the midst of all of it the commercialism, the materialism, the fun, the enjoyment, or maybe your uh, hatred of it, to pause and to recognize that there is something more in the midst of all of this. I think for many of us, Advent can feel like a welcome reprieve because it is a moment to be honest in the midst of desperation and desolation. For so many of us, I think that don't love Christmas, or maybe do love Christmas, that angst we feel, what we feel deep in our bones, is this disconnect. There is a dissonance in Christmas. Christmas carols, if you know music, aren't supposed to have dissonance. They're not supposed to have minor keys. They're supposed to be jolly and cheerful, and they're supposed to be sung in the family key, as Frank Sinatra will tell us. It's supposed to be happy. There's not supposed to be any unresolved in Christmas tunes, right? And that's what makes Advent songs weird in a Christmas season. Why are we playing minor keys in a, in a season of celebration? It's Christmas. It's supposed to be happy. It's supposed to be joyful, not sad. But many of us know we, we experience that dissonance in us that as we try to celebrate something like Christmas, we recognize that something oftentimes feels off. And you're left with two choices in these moments. You can become cynical and angry and just be like, oh, bah humbug, Christmas isn't worth it. I'm not going to celebrate it. Or you can just double down on all of it and sort of just be like, I'm going to Christmas to the nth degree and just pretend like none of that, we're going to ignore the dissonance. We're going to ignore it and we're just going to pretend for six weeks that everything in my life and in my world is perfect and Christmas makes it all better. And then Advent comes along and says, it doesn't have to be either or in that option. What you can do is you can acknowledge the dissonance. You can acknowledge the pain, the suffering, the disconnect. You can acknowledge and name the darkness and the places that we find ourselves, and yet you can also still celebrate Christmas. You can have a little bit of fun. You can enjoy the trees and the lights, okay? So Advent, and what we're inviting you into this season and in every season, is to, to hold the two in tension, which, by the way, this is why we call these things practices, and why we say things like practicing Advent and spiritual practices and disciplines. Because this is the life of the believer. You are called to be constantly at tension and at odds with the world around you and what is true inside of you. There are always two realities at play for the believer. The Advent life and Advent season is the life of a believer here on this side of eternity. You are always acknowledging that there are both uh, future realities and truths that are more real than what you're experiencing, yet that doesn't mean that you have to ignore what you are experiencing. Sadness, pain, suffering, those are very, very real, and you acknowledge them, and you name them, and you give yourself to them, and you are allowed to grieve these things, and yet you do not grieve as one without hope, right? And so you're just doing the reverse here. Culturally, societally, outside of these walls, even inside of these walls, we're celebrating 
celebrating, having fun, enjoying the season. We are allowed to do that. And yet we pause and we acknowledge that all is not right in the world. That there is pain and there is suffering. There's darkness. And we embrace the darkness. And I think this is a gift to you and to, I, to me and to the world around us and to our culture and our society. I think as we offer it, so many people talk about Christianity and religion as a coping mechanism, opiate for the masses. Many of you have heard this acknowledgement. And many of you have participated in and practiced a type of faith or a religion, even Christianity itself, that would give credence to those arguments. Happy, clappy, everything is right and good in the world because we have Jesus and you should just be grateful that you're alive and that Jesus saved you and that we move on. And we see how it is a way to just cope with difficulties and hardships. But Advent and the lectionary, this liturgical calendar and what the church has been doing for thousands of years, says, no, you do not have to do that. Not only do you not have to do that, you shouldn't do it and you can't do it. But you must instead walk into the difficult spaces and into the darkness, to the hardship, to the brokenness. That You must look it into the eye and walk right there at it. And this is what we do on the first Sunday of Advent. We walk into the darkness. Because this is where Advent starts. It does not start in the manger in Bethlehem with the star high in the sky. It starts asking questions like, where are you now, God? How have you abandoned us? We know you're good. We know you are to be near to us. Where have you gone? Can you hear me? Do you listen to my prayers? All of the things, the little seated doubts the struggles, the difficulties that you experience throughout your life as a believer, throughout the year, throughout the weeks, the months, the days, where you wonder, is God actually listening to me? Is he really there? Is he actually in control? Is he really over all of this? Is he really sovereign? Advent says, bring all of those questions with you. And ask them desperately, honestly, deeply. Look yourself in the mirror. Open your prayer book. Open up the Psalms and ask, where are you, God? How are you not more near, more present, more tangible to us? How are you not fixing the problems of my life and my friends' lives and the people around me? If you have ever experienced something that you have prayed for your entire life, that you've longed to see the Lord fix, you are good and right to ask, why have you not fixed it? Because you know he is capable. This is what Isaiah is saying saying, I know. I know who you are. I know what you're capable of. Where are you? These are the questions of Advent. This is what you're being begged to walk into and to embrace and to wrestle with, to ask before the Lord honestly, what does it mean that it seems you are not present, real, around us, that something has happened, that the things that you seem to be able to do, the things that you seem to promise to do, aren't always taking shape and place because you're holding on to hope and knowing that there is more to this. The prayers or, or the, the request of Isaiah in Isaiah 64 are not of Jesus coming in the manger, not the first coming, though that is a, a sign and a foreshadowing of what it is, but Isaiah is getting after what we call the second coming, that Christ would come again to judge the living and the dead. And that his kingdom would have no end. Isaiah is longing for that day and asking for it to come. Now, here's the reality. If Advent invites us into this darkness, and if we are going to pray these prayers with Isaiah and understand them, we have to understand what he's asking. Because here's the thing. When you ask 
Where are you, Lord? Where are you, God? When you join with us over the next few weeks and sing, as you should, O come, O come, Emmanuel, your O comes and your request for Emmanuel must be for Emmanuel himself and not your construct or ideas of what Emmanuel should do. Isaiah is doing in these first few verses of Isaiah 64. He is not asking for God to come in some soft, kind of mild manner way that will make his life better. He's asking for the God of the Exodus to arrive. The one that made mountains tremble, that made fire appear, the one that made people fall on their faces. This is the God he wants to come. Because he is aware that the domesticated God that the people of Israel have tried to control and manipulate and get what they want out of is not a God that can come and save them in the desperate and broken places that they find themselves. The God that he is longing for to come is Yahweh himself, the creator, the one that is fierce and free and wild. The one that does not come safely or does not come in a domesticated box. The one that does not come granting you all of your wishes. The God he is longing for is a God that rends the heavens apart. Do you understand what this says? The heavens for the Hebrew people... This would have been where God was, their understanding, their ideas. This is where God lived and stayed. This is a holy and righteous place. This is their understanding of how the world works. And he's saying, come and tear that apart. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would rip apart our understandings and our ideas of who you are. Come as the God of Sinai. Come as the one that came and shook the mountains and made things tremble and desolated nations and empires that had held us into slavery. Come and be that God, one that acts, one that demands action and response from us. Because that's the thing. If he is going to ask the God of Sinai to come, then what he is saying in response is that we, the people, and the people here that he is praying on behalf of, must respond as the people of Exodus did. You don't get to be who you want to be in a moment of brokenness and desolation and ask God to come and rend things apart and turn things upside down and tear your ideas and your understandings of the way the world operates and functions down to the ground, and continue to be the same person that you have always been. You have to become something wholly different. And you have to become a person that follows that God into that wild, fierce, and free place of the wilderness. The wilderness was not a safe place. It was not a good place to be. It was dangerous. There was risk. There was need. There was not the ability to just do what you wanted to do. There was a thing that you had to do, which was follow that God that came and that shook things up. And Isaiah is saying, if you want your O comes to be the God that comes and does something, then you too have to be the type of person that changes and that responds to that kind of God. And this is what he's asking. This is what he's longing for. And this is the question and the longing of Advent. That we would be this type of people And that we would long for that type of God. Not the God that simply just comes and does what we want him to. Not the God that makes our lives look better. Not the God that we pray to and hope that everything works out okay. Not the God that we give nice things in the first week of December, hoping that it comes back to us in the third week of December. It's not how this game works. The God that we ask to come and to rend the heavens, to shake the mountains, to come and fire and smoke, to come and destroy is a God that we are willing to let ourselves be destroyed by. We talked about this a couple years ago when we went through Exodus. That what it meant to walk up that mountain and into that fire was to to be willing to die in that space 
and in that moment, to be completely undone. And that is what happens when you encounter this type of God in these types of moments, is you are undone, but in all of the best types of ways. The Lord meets us, and he does something to us. And this is the prayer of Advent. This is the hope we have, that we can pray to this kind of God, that we can pray and ask for this kind of change to happen, that this would be a God that acts a God that moves, a God that comes devastatingly near to us in the type of ways that it causes us to tremble and to quake, the type of God that causes us to fall and to be unable to, to move or continue as things were. This is what we're asking when we ask God to come. This is what Isaiah is asking when he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and the mountains would tremble, and the ground would shake. Because that's what the presence of God does. The spirit of God in Hebrew is the kavod. It just means weight or heaviness. They get this idea that there's a reality of when the presence of God shows up, that there's something unshakable. When everything else around him quakes and moves and shakes, what comes, what comes in that place is something that does not shake and tremble. What comes is something that cannot be burnt up. The author of Hebrews is going to pick up on this in their letter. So say, we then should become the type of people that long to participate in and live a life that is in that kind of manner, in that kind of being in existence, a life that cannot be shaken and that cannot quake and cannot tremble as it has been transformed into something more than what we see here and around us. This is what the prayer of Advent is. This can seem really kind of overwhelming, right? I've shared with you guys this before, the, the five truths that uh, Richard Rohr tells that every boy should know, every man, as, as they grow up, that they should know. And I, I won't name them all, but I was, I was sharing this over Thanksgiving with one of my brother-in-laws. And uh, our aunt was sitting over here, or Anna's aunt, basically my aunt now, you know, whatever. And so, like, we've been there long enough. And so she asked, she says, well, isn't that really, like, kind of, like, fatalistic? Because his truths are things like, you're not the center of the world, you're not that important, the world doesn't evolve around you. You're going to die. Everything's not about you. And I was saying, like, I'm, I, I say these things to my six and my four-year-old, and all of them were like, that's kind of dark. And I'm like, no, it's wildly and beautifully freeing because the world's not about them, and they're not the center of it all, and they don't have to worry about it. And the things that they're trying to do, they're not going to be forever. The reputations that we try to build, the, the names we try to make for ourselves, the things we try to hold on to and achieve in life, those things are all well worth pursuing. Cheer for your favorite sports team, and then go to bed knowing it was a sports game, unless your team won, and then you get to talk trash the next day, right? For me, it was just a game, you know, whatever, you go to bed. The, the result would have been the other way. It would have been the most important thing that ever happened in our lives. But no, you go after these things. Be successful. Get degrees. Be good at your job. Make something that's beautiful that the world wants to come and participate in. Put art and music on display in a way that millions of people want to come and listen to it or view it. That's okay. Just know that that's just a small part. And you're free to create and to do and to work and to try and to apply yourself to things and to know you're, you're not defined by it. You're going you're gonna to die and this is going to end. Two, three, maybe four generations if you do something really, really profound. Most of us here can't name very many people that were all that important in the 1800s. A few of you history buffs, you know, that's it. 
This is freeing. It's not cynicism. It's not fatalism. It's an embrace of the darkness and the difficulties of life. It's, an, it's a way to say and approach life that goes, I, I'm not that important. Everything's not about me. And yet I can find a way to live and to be free and to be hopeful. And I want my boys to see that and understand that there's a grace and an ease about life that you begin to operate and function from. Advent's inviting us into this. And this is what you get to do. When you see this, when you understand who God is and what he's asking of you and what he's requiring of you. Is, I'll read this translation of it. This is from the JPS. It's the uh, Jewish, or J, yeah, JPS, the Jewish Publication Society. It's a really cool translation of the Bible if you've never read it. They only did the Old Testament because it's actual Jewish people. And they translate things in really Jewish ways, which is really helpful because we're not Jews and the Old Testament is. And Jewish people think a lot differently. And they pray really bold prayers and they say really crazy things that we're just like too domesticated and sophisticated to say. But the Jews don't care. And I love that. The Hebrew people didn't care. That's why the Psalms are full of them sh shaking their hand at who God is and what he's doing. And we're all like, no, you can't be mad at God. And God's like, no, just be mad at me. At least be mad at the right person if you're going to be mad. So the Jewish people, they, they translate it this way. It says that in verse 3, 64, our translation says, for when you did awesome things that we did not expect. That's nice. When you live this way and you embrace this life of what Isaiah is talking about, the Jewish translation says it this way. The JPS, they translate it into English as, you did wonders that we dared not hope for. It seems subtle, but I think that's a massive transition. That what I'm inviting you into is not to just sit around and be like, well, I guess like I just have to whatever. No, 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 no. You get to live a life that is completely free and wild and hopeful. And you get to watch a God that wants to act and to move and to be a part of your life come into your life and act and move and be a part of it. Because here's the reality. The God or whatever it is that you worship, you will get that in return. Whatever it is that you long for in your heart and in your mind and in your body, whatever it is that you want to worship and center your life around and the ideas of that and how you view that and see that, this is why theology matters. It's really fun to talk about and write papers on and debate and to argue and to talk and have conversations and all of this. But it matters because the God that you worship is the God that will be in your life. And if you worship and long and pray to a God that does not act, if you worship and pray and read and study and your life is shaped and formed around this really sophisticated, really fancy God that is kind of aloof and distant and off over here that doesn't really come into your life and shake things up and rend and tear things apart then you will get that in your life. But if you pray and long and ask and believe that God is a God that acts and that he comes in and he comes really near to you and he interrupts your life and he finds you exactly where you are and what you are doing and what is happening around you and he meets you there and he does something, then that is the God that you will get. And when you get that God, you get hopes and dreams and desires that you dared not hope for yourself. You get dreams that you didn't even imagine were true. You get understanding and realization, and there's a joy, and there's a peace, and I'm standing in front of you as someone that has done this. This is not off over here for me. This, these are things that I have experienced myself. I look around my life on a regular basis, and I think to myself, how did this happen? Because a lot of this is not what I wanted. A lot of this is not where I thought I would be. A lot of this isn't what I would have said that I was trying to accomplish and achieve. And yet I look around and I think, man, my life is really beautiful. Because God interrupts and he does things in my life and, and he acts and he moves and he's present. 
and I experience it, and it changes me. And then I ask him to do it again, and guess what? He does it again. He shows up, and he does these things, and I've seen him do it in your lives. Whether you've recognized it or, or come here this morning thinking, yes, I know that God has moved in my life. You may find yourself in a space this morning, spaces that I'm familiar with, a space I was just sharing that six months ago, my prayers were, God, I don't think you're doing anything in my life. Where are you? It feels like nothing has actually changed all that much. And I was in a pretty frustrated place of thinking, like, will I ever actually become the thing that I know that I can be or am supposed to be, that God longs for me to be, this person that lives in fruits of peace, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, I don't know. I don't know if that's real. And then God says, hey, look, look around you. It is real. And it takes people around you to name that and acknowledge that in you and to see your story and to name it back to you. And so as you sit in this room, I can see some of your eyes and your faces and I know your stories and I can tell you that God is acting in your life because I have seen it. You have changed. You've matured. You've grown. You've found a deeper peace. The way you parent, the way you are a friend, the way you are a friend to me, the way you are a spouse. I see the Lord moving and working in your lives and that brings me great joy. And that's why I come back here again and again because I need that. I need to know that this is true, that God acts and that he shows up and he does things in our lives. That's why we have seasons like this where we sit around and we say, okay, Lord, show us. Show us what you want to do. Come and rend the heavens apart. Come and tear them asunder. Give our small, kind of too weak, too mild, too sophisticated understandings of who you are and what you want to do in our lives a, a whole new way of understanding. Tear them down. Rip them apart. Throw them away. Bring us fresh and a new view and understanding of who you are and what you want to be. The God that you intend to be. A God that makes mountains tremble and earthquake and fire set ablaze to twigs. This is who God wants to be. This is what Isaiah is asking God to come and to do. I'll say this quickly and then we'll land this plane. I think the reason we come to something like the first Sunday of Advent and the season of Advent and why we struggle getting to this place is because to walk into the darkness, to embrace the darkness, the brokenness, the difficulties, to see it, to experience it, is to be very afraid that what you will find there is something that looks a lot like your own life and your own being in existence. The challenge to wrestle with is to get to the bottom of it all, past the blame of everyone else in your life, past all of the things that you uh, think that have held you back or stopped you from becoming what you wanted to become, past all of the things in life that you think it just didn't go your way and you're asking God to change those things, your circumstances, cards you were dealt. You wrestle, you dig, you deep, you go into the darkness. And for too many of us, what we are afraid to find there and why we are unwilling to go there is that we are afraid we will find us in the middle of it. Our lives, our chaos, our disorders, our frustrations. The reality of it is, is that we're unwilling to acknowledge the sin that is in our own lives, our own like, role that we have played in making things really difficult around us. Briefly share one other uh, story from the Thanksgiving. I was, again, another brother-in-law. It's actually the same conversation I was talking to him. We were laughing. Uh, Anna and his wife, Sarah, sisters, they're, they're, they're a lot alike. And he was joking, and he was like, dude, how does that not just make you so angry? Like, and I'm like, well, it does make me really angry. And I'm like, for eight years, I, I ruminated, and I, and I brewed over it. And I was just like, oh, she always does this. It makes me so mad. 
And then one day through parenting and through prayer and through friendship and conversation, I, I begin to realize, and I've realized more and more, that for eight years that did make me really angry, and I still let her know. I'm like, hey, Anna, that, like, that makes me mad. I think I have the freedom to do that. But I realized after eight years that, like, actually I'm the way more difficult person to live with in this marriage. And I don't say that, like, to be self-deprecating and, oh, Jonathan, like, he's the pastor. He's trying to be nice to Anna. No, no, no. I say that in the way that Paul says it in the end of Romans. Oh, wretched man that I am. I long to do good, and yet I go on sinning. I long to change, and yet I'm the same person. And I realize after a while in marriage and after a while in parenting, there's a common denominator to all the problems in my life. The relationships I have, the things that make me really angry, there's one thing that stays really consistent in everything that makes me mad. Me. I'm always there. I'm always the one getting frustrated. I'm always the one rolling around in anxiety. And here's the thing. When you can embrace that, wait, there's a role that I play. There's something here. And you can hold that before the Lord and you can say, Lord, change me. I think I might be the problem. Don't change my circumstances. Change me. He does it. I think that's, that's an invitation of Advent. It's why we confess our sins during Advent. It's why it's a penitent season. It's a season where we hold before the Lord the things that we fall short of. And we say, we need you to come. Because the things that I'm trying to do to make this thing better, to make this thing work, they are not working. And Christmas is a loud declaration that you need something transcendent to fix the problems of the world. And this has a long ramification out to how we understand politics and social, like, culture, interactions, and all of these things. So we must understand that there are problems that exist in the world that continue to go over and over and over again. And there are not human answers to them. And that is what Christmas is trying to get us to come to. It's what Advent is trying to get us to come to, the brokenness, the darkness. We do not have the light. There's a light that will come. It is outside of us. And we sit in anticipation for the coming of that light. And we ask that God would come, that he would tear things apart, that he would change things up in our lives, that he would, he would move and act. And we must be a people that are willing to be moved upon and acted upon and that will participate in that and that aren't going to try to control what that looks like. And to say openly and freely, Lord, come and move. Do something in my life. Change me. And then to be changed by it. As the band comes up, we're going to move into communion. I think what, when, when we do this, when we start talking like this, when we begin to like, have this hope, and, and we get excited, and, and I, at least I get excited, obviously. I get really worked up and, and excited about a God that is wild and free, that is fierce that is full of abounding life and energy. I'm like, yeah, 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 I want that, I want that God. I want that one. And, I, and I'm like, I'm even willing to go into those places and to find what, what I'm afraid to find at the bottom because I would rather go in and find what I'm afraid to find and to get the hopes and the dreams and the gifts that God is promising that I'm also afraid to hope and to dream for, right? That's why we're afraid to hope for those things because we know what it'll cost and ask of us. And God wants to come and do those things, okay? As we do this, what I think is uh, the temptation is to live into that place of fear. The passage Kyle read this morning from Mark is talking about the same things, pulling from these same, same ideas, that God would come and, and he would do something. He would tear things apart, that he would turn them upside down, that he would shake things up and change them. That's scary, but we live as a people not in fear. We don't live as a people hand-wringing, sitting to the sideline, afraid of what might come. When your faith becomes challenged, 
as a pastor for 10 years now, I've sat with people in this, and you've probably sat with friends. I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. When you're in those moments and someone is questioning their faith and they're struggling, or you see someone working through something, or you see someone, uh, things just aren't working out the way that they think they should work out, or that you think they should work out for them or for you, there's a way in which we begin to come, get really, really worried and frustrated, and we think, we got to fix this. And I think Advent is actually saying, no, 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 look, that's the place that God begins to move and to work, where things seem really unsettled. He's not causing it, he's not making it happen, but in those spaces when that begins to happen, as Mark said, when things begin to look kind of crazy, tumult and turmoil all around, whether internally or externally, in those moments, look up and see that God is coming near. Because what scripture promises is that that is where God shows up most closely. He's in the good things. Don't get me wrong. But there, that is where you experience him. That is where he's the closest. And that is what he does in Christmas. And that's what we have hope for. That when things seem to be off kilter and off access in our lives, when someone near to us is questioning and wrestling, we don't have to fix we do the thing that God does and we just stay near. As parents, this should give you great comfort. When things seem really difficult and you're asking a lot of questions, you don't have to, oh, what am I going to do? You stay near. You stay present. In marriages where you're struggling, and you're asking a lot of questions of, was it supposed to be like this? And things are really hard. You get to pray prayers like that God will come and do something about it because where it is difficult and where it is hard, that is where God wants to show up and meet you. He wants to be near to you in those spaces, in family and in friendship, desires and in longings where it seems like there is no way. That is the only place that God can act. And so as we hope, and as we come to the table and we come and we take the piece of the bread and the cup and we go back to our seats and we hold on to them and we continue to sing songs and we wait to take of those elements together, what are your hopes this season in Advent? What are the things that you're desiring, longing, that only God can do? What are the ways in which you want to lay aside your really sophisticated, domesticated, simple, this is who God is, lay that aside and go, this is the thing that I need. What are the places you're willing to go and in the darkness you're willing to like mine, if you will, the depths that you're willing to, to wade into? And look for it. Because where there is chaos and trembling and shaking, there's where the Lord is coming. And that's what he wants from us and for us. So as the band plays, come take the bread, the cup, go back to your seats, hold on to the elements. Come receive the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.